Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. The gang is all back. It's been a few <laughs> weeks. Uh, I apologize for my... I think I haven't been on in like two or three weeks now, right? Yeah, we missed you. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You had a big change in it. Everything's a blur. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, the bigger thing was that I went on... I went to go visit my parents uh, in Washington and see my new nephew. Aww. And so that was the that was the actual reason. I mean, it wasn't this new job, but... Uh, just to, you know, answer any questions that might be, yeah, we're still going to do the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I have a new job that is for the opinion section of the Times, and I'll be writing twice a week. And uh, But we're still going to do the podcast, and the evidence for that is that we're doing the podcast right now. And I'm here with Tammy. You have plenty of takes. <laughs> I don't know why I said that in such a hostile way or that like anyone is really asking you know I'd be like I'm sick of everyone asking like literally nobody has asked if we're still doing the podcast yeah I was like what are you like listen to? all of you all of you haters who are out here saying oh, you, you can't do the podcast and the newsletter at the same time well guess what here I like nobody has asked that. anyway wait so um, is the nephew cute I mean, what do you want me to say, Tammy? It's my nephew. <laughs> yeah, but there. Say no. I mean, definitely. Yes, but there are different cute. kinds of cute. Like, what? What is he like? Does he have a personality? Well, I'm. I'm more curious about what the how you define different ways methods of cute for a three month. Well, first old of all, baby. I don't think all babies are cute, but of course, it's your nephew, so like this one's going to be cute. But then there are different ways of cute, like. I you know I don't know what, what does know, he do like I, I don't really think about ba- I don't really. I don't really think of babies in terms of cute and non-cute. Do you? So are you calling me a lookist, a baby lookist? I, I think you're baby vain, Yeah. you know? <laughs> There's Superficial. A bit of baby shallow. <laughs> All babies are beautiful. I'm body shaming babies now. Yeah, I feel like you can, yeah, I don't know. I mean, no, I think most babies look the same, you know? Like uh, like grandparents, basically. Yeah, they're just kind of like... There's old. some ugly babies out there, but I'm like sure your sister formless very cute. Little mushes that, you know, yeah. uh, are cute. And anyway, it was great. Uh, nice. Washington's really... The weather's been really great in Washington. So. Are you back? I'm back from my road trip. Okay. Oh, so you guys Tammy. just crisscrossed yeah. each other. I van lifed and Miss J. Tammy is doing her van life wander yar. <laughs> And uh, Andy is here too. Andy, how's Philadelphia? Um, same as always. I guess there was a lot of freaking out about the storm this last week. Um, people's yeah. plans, several friends' plans were interrupted, but I don't know. We just kind of stayed in the crib the whole time. Just whatever. Ignored it. Um, was it okay? I think so. We get these alerts all the time. I feel like yeah. um, these automated weather service alerts, I don't know if you guys get them in your cities or just like out of control. I get like flood warnings every single day. And I'm like, it's probably just like five minutes of rain. But um, I don't know, school is beginning this week. Um, I think, you know, that coincides with what we're going to talk about later um, this episode. It is? I'm like, yeah. I mean, we're talking about school reopenings. No, well, school reopenings, but also universities. Like, oh, okay. The chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, He's like, I read We're the doing wrong a thing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I mean, every school here in the Bay Area has had a COVID shutdown already. Oh, wow. Not really? every, but most of them. Yeah. Uh, like uh, a lot of schools. Wow. Even in like 
So, I mean, I don't know why I would make this distinction, but you would like in the richest areas and the poorest areas, it doesn't matter, you know, all sorts of. Now, what they're doing is they're not fully shutting down the school, but they're taking entire classrooms and basically being like, you don't have school for the next two weeks or we're going to go remote for the next two weeks and kind of isolating them that way. But it's kind of scary, you know, Um, one of the truths of the earlier pandemic was that it did not seem like kids could really transmit to one another. Yeah. And with Delta, they don't know. I mean, they're not saying that this can happen, but they just have sort of moved it to, well, we don't know, you mm-hmm. know, and I don't want to be too alarmist about it, but there certainly seem to be much more kids who are getting infected here in the Bay Area than there were the first uh, yeah. time around. And most of the data proves that out. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Is the is the Vax required at your university, Andy? Yeah, I think most. Well, OK. Unless you're in the like Confederate states, most schools in this country are, I think, doing the required vax. Masks is a different question. Well, or test out. Uh, I don't know. I guess I've maybe maybe, but that would kind of surprise me that people would opt for testing rather than vaccination. Administrations would allow that. I think most people, most Northeast schools, I would say, and pro- I assume West Coast schools also are vax required. <laughs> the Confederate states. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be on, just being, just being real, what we're talking about. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I maybe next week I'll be super stressed out, but um, th- right now I'm just kind of holding my breath to see what happens this week. Yeah, Tammy, are you teaching at all this semester, or are you just no? I'm just doing having fun journalism and van lifing again. Sorry, I was just checking to see if the UC has had um, vax requirements, vaccination mandates, and I don't know. So. Uh, I have to assume that New York City public schools just changed this week from vax or test to vax. vax for did the union accept that? Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, Randy Weingarten sort of changed her tune this past couple of weeks. Oh, okay. We have a full show today um, as not evidenced by our rambling introduction. <laughs> but uh, we're going to talk about the first thing I wanted to talk about was what just happened in California in relation to labor, in relation to the... Uh, Proposition 22, which uh, was a big deal back in November when the elections were taking place. I mean, that and I would say I think it was by far the most discussed proposition on the California ballot. And what was interesting was that it was also the one that nobody understood because it was written in such an incomprehensible way on purpose. Right. Um, So that people who were reading it would have no idea what side they were on. In fact, like I remember I got my ballot and I was like, I still don't, you know, I've done some research on this stuff and looking into it and I still didn't know what side I was supposed to vote on, you know, and I had to, wow, you can see my blurt in the Zoom screen. You can see my hey, blurred child in the background. Hey, Frankie. <laughs> um, this is the first time she's ever intruded. All right. So Frankie, dad's doing his. <laughs> we got to keep this in. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Tammy, can you tell us what proposition? <laughs> the blur it's background is funny because it keeps switching between me I and Frankie. Uh, can, you, uh, can you tell us what Proposition 22 was and what just happened to it? Yeah. So, um, we talked about this in early November on um, our post election episode. But as Jay was just saying, Prop 22 is a popular vote in California on the legal classification of gig workers. So, Folks probably know from reading the media that ever since Uber came into the market, basically there's been a huge push to say that everybody who comes through any kind of employment on an app 
is an independent contractor and not an employee. And that makes a huge difference. It means you don't get rights, basically, because our entire system is based on employment classification. Um, And so this proposition was super confusing language. It was pushed by Uber, Lyft, Instacart, and other tech and app companies. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars on campaigning and lobbying. But I think also it's true that a lot of people have bought into the rhetoric of we are small business people, you know, entrepreneurial app-based work is good for the economy. Like, I think it's not just that it was trickery, you know, there there definitely was a sizable portion of the population that was into the, the prop. And, and these companies spent millions and millions yeah, of dollars like on hundreds campaigning. of millions. Yeah. I mean, it was like it was sometimes you forgot that the election was happening <laughs> and you, you just saw. felt like, yeah, because it wasn't like the Biden campaign was spending all that much money in California, you know, um, or that any of these local races were particularly close. But yeah, it did spend, it seemed like, uh, wow, the election is only about Prop 22. (laughs) (laughs) I think we talked about it in November too. It was like all these smiling ads of people of color and immigrants, like driving for Uber. (laughs) The united colors of Uber drivers, basically, (laughs) and DoorDash delivery people. Exactly, like brown and black happy gig workers. (laughs) So, So anyway, Prop 22 was meant to, it was a reaction to this test called the ABC test that was implemented in California that was going to have national implications, which made it really hard for an employer to classify a worker as a contractor, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but so when Prop 22 passed, it was really, it made everybody really nervous on the labor side because gig companies were going to start pushing this logic in other states. They've already started in Massachusetts and sort of in New York. Um, and the scary thing in Prop 22 that always unnerved me too was there was a provision that to change any portion of it, you would need seven eighths of the legislature, oh my which God, is yeah. insane. I mean, first of all, you're constraining an entire yeah. branch of government. And like, why is it such a specific ratio? The whole thing was a super yeah. bizarre formulation, is there, right? Is it like a seven eighth requirement in any other law? Like I've never heard of that before. I hadn't heard of I mean, I'm out of the legal game, yeah. so we should maybe ask your wife. But yeah. I, <laughs> Why are those it things was legal? Very like, I don't understand how you can write a law Seven and days. have these enshrinement I know. Like, writers to it. I mean, they should all be illegal, right? Like, that's why they can't change the SHSAT in New York City, for example, for Brooklyn Tech. Stuyvesant and Bronx Science is because of Hart Calendaria or whatever, Calendaria or something like that. I forget the name. Hecht Calendaria. And that's basically saying that, oh, this one test in New York City is now part of state law instead of city law, you oh know? And so then the state has to, and the governor needs to like weigh in on it, which is ridiculous. And it's just a way so they don't, they can't change the test, right? Yeah. And so like, I've all those sorts of enshrinement things should not be legal. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's just like, this is a super law. Yeah. I know, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like a no Never, trade clause in sports, it. you know? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Anyway, go ahead, Tim. I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, no. So yeah, I that was the thing that always bothered me. And so it turns out, obviously, that was like a weakness of the law. So the SEIU and four individually named workers who were affected by the law, they sued the state of California. And Friday night, they got a very good decision, which came in from the state superior court in Alameda County near Jay, basically saying that Prop 22 was indeed unconstitutional. And the main main ground for the unconstitutionality was actually that 7 eighths piece with regards to workers' compensation. I think this is really interesting because workers' compensation is like a very unglamorous kind of workers, right? Right? Which is basically like trying to make employers pay when workers get hurt or killed on the job. But it is so, so essential to our system. And it's so old that we often don't give it the credit that it deserves. But basically, in this decision, the judge is saying, like, any effort to constrain the legislature's ability to impose workers' comp more broadly for the worker population is unconstitutional. So I think that's a really good decision. And then there was a kind of like, 
minor part of the decision that wouldn't wipe out the entire law, but that I liked, which was attacking a part of Prop 22 that went totally out of its way to limit gig workers' ability to collectively bargain. Um, So I just wanted to read like one sentence that the judge wrote because it's really delicious. Um, He wrote that this part of the law constraining collective bargaining, quote, appears only to protect the economic interests of the network companies, the gig companies, in having a divided, ununionized workforce. Oh, wow. So you just came out and was basically like, you just did this, you like made a whole bill and spent all this money to just union bust, which is what it always was, right? right? I mean- even yeah. though like it, I, it was so interesting because it was so pro Tammy, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed so proactive to me at the time because it wasn't like there was some huge threat that this unionization was going to happen. You know, um, people talk about the unionization of these things, but the reality of it is that, you know, like it's not like people are signing cards or anything out there. And so it was just kind of like in case you guys ever get this idea, <laughs> yeah. here's like we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this campaign and just jam it through, you know. Totally. Um, and yeah, yeah it's great the that the rights, judge just kind of called it out for what he it totally was. called it. Yeah. I mean, because among the rights that you get if you're an employee and not an independent contractor is the right to collectively bargain. And that's one of the ones that's the scariest to yeah. these companies. So, yeah, I think it's it's a really cool decision. So props to Judge Roche and the workers and the unions that, that put this through. But Prop 22 actually remains in place because there is has been a notice that the company has said the companies have said that they're going to appeal. So for now, there's really no change on the on the books. Yeah. So we'll how see. long will an appeal take? Do you think? I don't know. It could take months. Okay, but not yeah. like not like nine years. No, no, I don't okay. think so. Yeah. If I assume that every appeal takes TBA, nine years. I know. Why nine years? <laughs> well, I don't know because the most a lot of them do. Yeah. Every legal story <laughs> is like a decade long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why the Supreme Court's always like resolving something that happened in like 2014 or something like that. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, I do think this is like a very Biden era, Democrat era decision because I mean, not that Roche in particular was influenced by it, but it's just to say that basically right now, like all of the labor agencies under Biden are trying to overturn Trump stuff that had constrained Mm. employee status. So there's a lot of people pushing this stuff forward. But, you know, right now, all of these workers still remain totally misclassified. All of the Uber and Lyft like jobs, gigs, rides that we're taking are completely like unlawfully compensated um interesting to see how those companies respond post you know post pandemic yeah right now they they're they're you know there's not any activity really compared to before and Mm -hmm. how do they remake themselves and um i don't know and the prices have been going up everybody's been talking about that oh yeah i mean it costs we, we now we had to go to the airport a couple times for family trips and taking it's cheaper to park in the like i parked in the short-term parking because and it was cheaper than an uber (laughs) you parked in short-term for long-term and it was much less long-term parking right yeah (laughs) yeah long-term parking is way cheaper than taking an uber yeah i just like parked next to the terminal (laughs) and walked across the bridge i was like it's cheaper than taking an uber you know like um and i i only did it because i was late you know but i was just like i was like doing the calculations while sitting in the terminal i was like oh my god i actually because i was a little 
I was a little upset because I was like, this is so I, I can't believe I just did this. You know, I can't <laughs> believe I just basically parked like who does this except for like the worst rich people, you know, and then I and it was cheaper than taking an Uber both ways. Um, was there- yeah, I mean, prices are going up, too. But, you know, ridership, I think, is down. And, you know, yeah, um, obviously. Definitely. And uh, it's interesting because that sort of coincides with people also not taking mass transit at all. And so there's everyone is basically just driving their cars. You know, which is obviously bad for many reasons. Yeah. Um, at least around here. Um, okay. Well, so Andy, it seems like it was ahead. like a this was like a procedural object or not procedural, but like it wasn't the heart of the bill that was being overruled. It was like this weird seven eighths aspect of it, right? Like, could the could the companies? I don't know if you know have to do like another proposition election or voting thing but like could the company simply say like take out the seven eights thing and keep the rest of it intact like yeah so the the decision the reason why the whole thing was overturned on that basis is because the seven eights provision was not severable from the rest of the law why isn't it and though? so yeah they just happened to write it was written as so that way so it, that okay. yeah so it's like it is kind of a procedural like argument that essentially ate the substance of the bill um so yeah, I mean they would basically kind of I mean if if this holds on appeal. Yeah. It seems like it has no future. The whole thing is over. Cuz they yeah, cuz they wouldn't be able to sack just that piece but, of it. I mean they might tear off something else, but I think this this is probably the thing that will go up in litigation. So So Uber couldn't like resubmit another proposition just minus the 7/8 part. Yeah, I think it would have to go back on the ballot. Wow. That's weird. Huh. Yeah. That's pretty dramatic. I mean we yeah, I mean, <laughs> whoever like wrote that seven eighths part has got to be like in in hot water right now at Uber. <laughs> You're like, but you said kind of <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, maybe um, maybe Vina Dubal or another uh, right, friend yeah. of the pod will will correct us if I've gotten this wrong. But I think I think that's where it stands right now, non severable. And here we are, here we go. So hopefully this is dead and. People in Massachusetts and New York will have to watch out for the copycats there. Well, but this is also like a violation of California law, right? So is it going to have reverberations throughout all the states? You know, well, it's only California. It will just be, yeah. It'll just it won't have um it won't have like starry decisis or it won't have like it won't be binding on those state jurisdictions, but it'll be persuasive. Yeah, starry decisis. First time those term that phrase has been uttered on our. I always like that. Sure. It sounds cool. It sounds you know? hella cool. It, so, yeah, it sounds it's like a like, good name for a kid. Like this is my <laughs> child. Starry decides this. <laughs> it's like better it's than the opposite of a hippie. Better name. than like habeas corpus. You know? <laughs> it's like this is these are my two kids, habeas corpus and starry decisis. Oh it's God. like you know, like Joe Lake of. I, I think it's Joe Lake. One of the owners of the all the owners of the Warriors are these like Ayn Rand fanatics, yeah. you know, like these Silicon oh. Valley dudes. Yeah. Oh, and God. one of them, I forget who it is. I think it's Joe Lake of. His dogs are named Roark and uh, God, what's the oh, other? Those They're both characters. named after characters in The Fountainhead. <laughs> Oh I think gosh. that's true. I think that's I read that. Yeah. No, it's definitely true. And is so, he 17? That's so sad. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's no, he's like 60 and has like $70 billion. But the um, but the other side of it, you know, it'd be funny if there's like a super legal, you know, law person, <laughs> you know, like uh, that Southpaw guy or something like that. This is my child. Starry. <laughs> and habeas corpus. We call him Haven Starry. Uh, anyway. Uh, that's not. I should just delete that. That's horrible. Joke. 
Anyway. Okay. Second thing, not funny thing that we want to discuss is, look, we're going to have some longer episodes, I think, in the future about Afghanistan. But I wanted to not, first of all, not show that we were avoiding the conversation, but more that I think we're stuck in this, at least me personally, I'm stuck in this place where I am not a, I am not an Afghanistan policy expert, you know, and uh, I don't know I how much sure. input You're I like, have to We know, say. Jay. <laughs> Thank you. I don't have that much. I don't know how much insight I have into this stuff, you know, and it does. I obviously have my own opinions on this stuff, but it's hard to like state publicly because the conversation is so it's so strangely meta in some ways, right? Like online and um, in the yeah. media, it's like, how should the media think about this and how should the media cover it? And should the media, uh, you know, show these images, should these reporters wear hijabs, you know, for example, like it, it seems and I, that's just sort of Wait, the way I missed which, that part. Um, it was, was that Clarissa Ward woman who was okay. CNN. Um mm-hmm. And then there's obviously all this stuff about, you know, who is actually objecting to the withdrawal and yeah. the way that it was done. Like, does anyone actually care or is it just the elites that care mm-hmm. and the elites in the media? Are, I've been listening to all these Noam Chomsky uh, <laughs> lectures on Audible in my car. Wow. And it's kind of amazing how Noam Chomsky basically pioneered the whole like the New York Times says this, mm-hmm. you know, and the New York Times is like a singular organism that that responds in these types of ways to affirm power, right? And that it creates consent in these sorts of ways. And he he just sort of like repeats that point a lot in these lectures. And it it was interesting to think about in terms of this media cycle because it seems like everybody is making those arguments, you know? And it's like this way in which like the Chomsky vision of the media and, and that he puts out in the propaganda machine that he puts out in manufacturing consent and then sort of like talks about in a lot of later lectures has almost become like the mainstream vision of things now, don't you think? Or like mm. a mainstream vision of, of looking at how the media in, in particular covers foreign policy right. conflicts. Is this about East Timor, those lectures? Right. East <laughs> Timor or Latin America, right? Or, yeah. or Vietnam, you know, like those yeah, are yeah. the three. Yeah. I don't know if it's mainstream, mainstream, but yeah, it's certainly widespread on like social media, right? A certain like kind of leftist on social media. Um, but even like Matt Iglesias, for example, is making these arguments. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. That nobody actually wants to stay in Afghanistan. It's only the New York Times and the sort of like the, the tools of the U.S. government that are making right, pro-imperialist arguments. Yeah. But what if they're right? <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying they're wrong. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying I'm surprised at how mainstream it is. Yeah. You know? um, I well, think I, especially with Iraq and Afghanistan, just because it was so clear. Yeah. And I think like we've all just digested that argument so much. I think we yeah, we, we have to talk about it's just like how colossal and monumental this was. Uh, momentous like the last week yeah. was in terms of I feel like and like I have not I'll be I'll, I'll say I'm guilty of not following this stuff very closely for the last decade, right? I feel like the last 20 years of like my understanding of the world have to be kind of reevaluated um, mm. because not that I was like pro war or anything, but I just like, didn't, I just thought like, okay, whatever. Everyone says it's fine. Like it's, it's probably fine, you know? And, mm. and reading these accounts now about how early on it seemed like it was fucked up and yeah. how persistently every president and military person trotted out to speak to the public lied about what was going on in a way that was, 
you know, very reminiscent of what you read about Vietnam. Right. Okay. But Vietnam, or, or like the bombings definitely. in in Indochina to right. use a Chomskyism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, like, so like when we were kids growing up, looking back at Vietnam, there's a consensus that was bad, right? And we're probably going to look mm. at, I mean, we are going to look at Afghanistan and Iraq as a consensus going forward, but we lived through it yeah. at a time when there was no consensus. There was actually, the consensus was probably in the other direction right. at the very beginning. Right, right, right. We have to do We this. had to do it. Yeah, the exactly. consensus was like messy, but had to do it, right? right? Because of 9-11. Right. Um, and I think, I don't know, you know, I think the difference between that and Vietnam and Tammy, I'm interested in your thoughts, Andy, you too, is that the Vietnam conflict was front page news in the United States because American soldiers and kids who were getting drafted were going out there and dying, you know, and that the peace movement was a big deal and was being, um, present everywhere. And what was happening in Afghanistan for 20 years by contracts, completely nobody paid any attention to. Yeah. So all the failures are all coming to light now, but they're not being confronted in real time, right? Like they're all history yeah. right, at this point. And so that distinction, I think, is interesting. I don't know. Do you think, does that seem accurate? I think that's Baudrillard's argument. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't actually read Baudrillard. Yeah, it's poetry. But no, it was like the Gulf War didn't happen, right? Because in Vietnam, oh, right, 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 they made right. the mistake of actually showing the footage of the war, which right, led to right. huge uh, protests against it. So with the Gulf War, they didn't actually show the war. They just like simulated it on CNN. And that's how they right. kind of got, if not consent, then apathy. And yeah, they the probably... The first Gulf War? Yeah, the first Gulf War, right? Yeah. Um, which I was too young, but you know, like, sure, like, like good job, yeah. US, you know, that was the consensus. And... I think that's like that's a general truism that the media avoids showing a lot of that stuff. Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's well documented the U.S. government asked the media to stop showing that stuff because it was swaying their opinion on Vietnam um, to be objective to actually show right, stuff right, right, over there. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it might just be like so uh, white or just like so accepted now that those conversations don't even need to happen. Where like the meat, like the the news just like knows that they aren't supposed to actually show how what's going on. They're just supposed to have like statistics and figures and um, infographics instead. Well, right, they have I one mean, moment. We should, we should though like it. acknowledge the great reporting that has been done consistently, and that there have been people really trying to fight through this. So like you know like the Guardian, the Intercept, like the Nation, like there are these yeah. days, you know sixty minutes even. I mean they're fr- front line. There've been these places that have really persisted in you know documenting all of this i was thinking about like that drone attacks investigation that anon gopal mm. um did a few years ago for the new york times magazine uh, the i mean Osmat there's just yeah kind of, yeah and with Ozma, you know there's amazing coverage so you know just to credit yeah. those folks but yeah i mean i do think to your guys's point like the draft is a huge difference i think also we were told here that this war was this war on terrorism has been absolutely like categorically different because it is an immediate threat to our land and our right, people right. because of 9-11. So just extending that sort of like bodily proximity, which is complete fucking bogus, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know. I feel like this week I've really just wanted to say like, I praise Biden and I think this is right. And I think it's unvarnishedly right. And I really, I don't actually, I think it's actually gone well. Yeah, And as like a, our friend of the pod, Rosina Ali, who was on a few months ago, she's, we were texting and she was like, 
you know, I keep thinking about how this is actually the least violent Afghanistan has been in 20 years. Yeah. Huh. You know? So I think there's just, we're all kind of reframing, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Andy. Like I wonder in 10 years what we're going to be saying and how we're going to be seeing this and just knowing that this complete abomination of $7 trillion, I think, not just in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq has, that was our childhood. That was our young adulthood. Yeah. Do we, I mean, like, do you think that there is, do you think any declarative statements can be made? Like this is the end of American empire, right? In this sort of way Um, that, that maybe, you know, obviously it's not the end, the end, but this is the beginning of the end where the public is just not going to support anything like this anymore. You know, now you could have said that about Vietnam, you know, and then right. yeah. obviously soon after that, we're involved in 5,000 other conflicts in in uh, Latin America, right? And, and like, yeah, so seriously. You, so like my general sense is that, you know, they're still just going to do what they're going to do, right? Yeah. And that um, as big of a deal as this has been over the past two weeks, it's certainly nothing compared to the fail. Like, that, I don't know. I wanted to talk a little bit, Andy, with you as a historian about like the comparisons to Saigon. Right, because yeah. like, that's the that's the yeah. comparison, and people are like, "This is not Saigon." And then early on, um, <laughs> before all the images of the plane started coming out, there was like some state official person who was like, "This is not Saigon," yeah. <laughs> and the person was like, "Why isn't it Saigon?" And he was like, "This is not Saigon." Yeah. <laughs> and he just repeated the state of the talk. And five point. minutes later, <laughs> yeah, like uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's like it's it was interesting to me because I don't. First of all, I I think that there is something where it's just like, all right, well it's bad but also you know the fall of saigon was like basically played in everyone's living room as this one was as well but it was seen as this catas- this massive massive catastrophe as this as well so yeah. there are some comparison points now i think that there are some differences as well which is just that like you know i think the vietnam war was as i said before a much bigger deal in people's lives right yeah. and that um and that I don't know. I, I always find balk at these types of historical comparisons because it seems like they're so built on images only, right? Like, yeah. It's like, okay, here's a plane taking off and here's another plane taking off and there are people <laughs> clinging to this helicopter and there are people clinging to this plane. And so obviously it's the same. I don't know. What do you think about the historical comparisons there, Andy? But did you, I didn't actually watch TV footage. Have you guys been watching TV footage like around the clock for last week? about this stuff not around but but some like i that's i think that's another thing is like that you know famously like at the time the vietnam war like mashes on tv and mashes like the most watched tv show ever like i don't think people have the same sense of like you know unification through media that they have 30 40 years ago i'm just like reading the headlines yeah also uh, I mean, very Chomsky-ish. That's true. Yeah, that is. <laughs> that, that one is. The, I mean, the analogies are... TV show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I also kind of think about your your teacher, Jay, who said, like, we've never lost a war. Vietnam was a tie. <laughs> yeah, Vietnam was a tie. <laughs> right. <laughs> that guy also called the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. Yeah. So, you know, it was... Uh, the Korean was, War was oh, a not, tie. Like, that was a tie. Somewhat ironically, yeah. but not that ironically, yeah. you know? So, yeah, go ahead. I don't know. I mean, the analogies are like completely on point, in my opinion. Um, I mean, the, the the basis for that analogy, though, is always from the standpoint of like uh, as a U.S. as a U.S. military person, like military buff almost, who's like, what are the ways where when, when are the times the United States military has lost? Um, right. It's when they overreach and get into a country they don't understand and they fight groups that have like a local base. Then we don't the United States does not have a local base and so on and so forth. And that's right. that's like kind of interesting to a certain extent. But in the end though, the logic of that kind of 
kind of almost sort of like bemoaning kind of voice is sort of like still pro-imperial in the end, right? Like pro-United States military. Like we, we should have learned sure. from our mistakes in the future. We'll be wiser about the wars we actually do fight. We should only fight like winnable wars in the future and things like that. So a lot so that stuff is like, um, kind of makes me uncomfortable because I don't like getting like tricked into identifying with the United States military or identifying with like the United States foreign policy as such. Uh, I think the analogy, I mean, there's lots of other historical analogies to make uh, in terms of, uh, you know, these empires, these imperial forces that go into places they don't understand and like reading the accounts of the U.S. soldiers or the, or the, the, Afghan, the U.S. propped Afghan government in Afghanistan and how they like didn't really understand what's going on locally and, and how they just sort of like, you know, when they when they faced the situation, they didn't understand. They just kind of like went for some whatever solution. You know, you get analogies like 19th century British Empire come up, analogies to United States and East Asia comes up. Um, I was actually kind of thinking this kind of gets giving me a little bit of deja vu with the China Civil War in terms of I the, was thinking yeah, the KMT was the sort China of Civil War. basically the KMT versus the Chinese communists in the 40s. Okay. Not to equate the Taliban with the Chinese Communist Party. Like, no, don't don't come after me. But like they were they had like a social base. They were guerrilla fighters. The right? tankies exactly. live in Andy's head. <laughs> and the KMT was like the government that's supposed to rule. <laughs> But they really had no social base. They had no, um, they had no morale or spirit. They were just right. basically backed by overseas money. And then once the United States kind of backed out a little bit, they just fell. Yeah. And I don't know. That, I don't know if that. And kind I would, of, yeah, blamed warlordism. Yeah, like the. Yeah, I mean, so it's very similar to the kind of Taliban, like yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to. I, I also did not want to tweet that out because I was like, no one's going to understand this in a tweet, but. <laughs> there are like all sorts of analogies i think for what what happened historically i do think the like the fall of saigon analogy though is kind of like a national change analogy which is still rooted in a kind of nationalism that i think is a little dangerous to play around I with think so. there was another history there were a couple other historical analogies floating around on twitter and and kind of washington dc like blobby sort of war machine type commentary which is you know we need to stay longer so that we can get Afghanistan to a point where it's like Italy or Germany or Korea, where we have a standing U.S. military presence <laughs> and essentially a sort of, you know, a kind of abnormal, like complementary government security apparatus that is supplied by the U.S. to like prop up this country indefinitely. Yeah. Right. You know, and positing Korea or Germany as a, as a, as a standard, as a goal in the scenario is so sick, actually, you know? Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, when you see that kind of thing floating around and, and having sort of like a mainstream purchase, you do really think like we are so far from the end of empire. We, we are so oh, naturalized yeah. to think that this kind of like neo-colonialism is completely fine forever. You know, I, even to the New York Times' credit, like I think Adam Nossiter like called it neo-colonial, called Afghanistan yeah. neo-colonialist. Like, yeah, right. so there are these people who are trying to like push these arguments even in the most mainstream, like yeah. potentially pro-war outlets. But man, it's it's pretty sick. I mean, Tammy, when you say that you just, th you, you praise Biden that the United States should just get out and not think twice about it. Is anyone voicing that um, loudly and confidently because i kind of feel like people might be thinking that but are sort of worried about saying it in in like very loudly right now i think the i think like kind of the anti-imperial people like 
the anti-war crowd, the Quincy type people are saying it. Um, maybe somebody like at like Adam Johnson, like some of these like very like anti-war kind of lefties. Yeah. But like, so, but um, like, certainly. No, sorry. Yeah, well, I was gonna say I think I'll, I think I've definitely also seen people who have done Afghanistan reporting say right. it. And but you know, I... I think they can also at the same time say obviously they have X Y Z concerns about it, but that in general this is good because this is what should happen. When I when I see that argument made, it's usually by people whose main focus is the U.S. itself. So it's like I'm kind of like working at the criticism of I the U.S. See. government. But to hear someone who actually knows Afghanistan will say that as well, I think would be it would be much more, I think, important to hear them say it. You know. Because a lot of times it's this kind of thought exercise for people who are just critical of the U.S. government, and that's like, well, true, you know. But but like if like Rosina or someone else who knows the Middle East well also believes this is the best, then that would be like really instructive. Tanya, how do you feel about the role that Afghanistan's women have played in the conversation about whether we should, whether this was a good idea or not? Yeah, that it seems to be the go-to. Totally. And look, understandably, <laughs> right? Like this is Hell not yeah. like some drummed up thing that like the NATSEC elites are, are telling us about. I mean, this is, you know, this is a real concern. I know. Um, yeah. And obviously the Taliban has come out and made some statements being like, listen, we're not the same Taliban as before, <laughs> which, you know, you can, you can judge by yourself, you know, one, you can come to your own conclusion about any of that. Right. And it's hard to tell what, reports coming out of Afghanistan right now are real and which ones are not. So we won't even bother with like, you know, but I don't think that anyone thinks that, you know, this is going to be great for the women of Afghanistan. Um, now, yeah. what, what, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I wish I knew spot, more. Of, but, you know, I know. I no, I mean, politics, I wish I knew so. more about like the feminist movement in Afghanistan. Like I was listening to um, a podcast with the Afghanistan guy at international crisis group earlier. And he was talking about how he had hope in, you know, some of the social movement infrastructure that has been built up over the past, you know, couple of decades, three decades. And the fact that, you know, without saying that the U S occupation has been good, that there are certain outcomes that we must acknowledge, like the fact that, you know, some of the kind of like imposed democratic values or whatever that the U S and the Afghan forces were trying to, occasionally like parlay have been inculcated into some of the Afghan youth. And like, what does that mean for youth who are used to being in more like secular spaces and more like open society, you know, in a more open society, like are those people going to push things forward? And I think we just have to hope that that they do and that the other sorts of like infrastructure for feminist and women's rights movements that are indigenous to the society will, you know, continue in the way that they were continuing. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. But, and I'm, yeah, I mean, I feel that, I feel the way that what you were just articulating of this thing, like, I don't want to make these like Sam Power, Hillary Clinton interventionist arguments that are based on feminism because I think right. it's violent and like deadly. Um, but yeah, I mean, am I concerned? Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think everybody is. Yeah, I, I, I think it's like, and it essentially seems like the media take on this is, is, or the media fight on this is between people who are like, but think of the people who are interpreters and think about the people yeah. who work with us who are all going to die, you know, and what about them? And then there's almost a too callous response, right? From the people who I think are right about this to just be like, well, you can't care about that stuff or you can just care, but care privately and, you know, 
Mm-hmm. And like, I don't, I don't really feel like playing traffic cop on any of this because uh, it's exhausting. But you know, I, I, I do think I don't know. I think on the in this case, both sides are arguing in some form of good faith here, right? Like people are concerned about these things in a legitimate way. Totally. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're being toadies for like the NATSEC uh, elite, you know, Washington elite type of consensus making, for example. Yeah. Um, now some are, some people are. I know that, that's right? the thing. But- and we're so used to those arguments being attached to those people <laughs> right, that it's right, like really right. uncomfortable to talk about it. Yeah. You know, like which it's is almost so like you up. don't want to be like, listen, I understand that you actually are concerned, you know, but <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Like people are concerned. Like, I mean, this is 20 years of involvement and a yeah. lot of people are going to suffer. Like, yeah. there's no doubt about that. But um, will they suffer more than under U.S. occupation? Who knows? You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like we shouldn't hesitate to say like in the places with strong U.S. presidents, like in this, like in the cities, like Kabul, it does seem like things were more liberal and secular and uh, liberal in the sort of like meta sense, and that probably was what a lot of people who lived there wanted, and materially their lives were better but the majority of the country doesn't live in those places. So uh, I don't know, we can have these debates about like, would it have been better? Would this outcome be better than another outcome? But those debates don't happen in a vacuum because once you start getting down the path of like, right. it would have been better for them to have this and therefore we should go there and give it to them, you know, as a foreign government, as a foreign power, then it gets kind of messy. And it's, and I think that's where a lot of this um, kind of well-intentioned liberalism kind of, intentionally or unintentionally becomes imperialism you know and, yeah and, well and, and like how do you history, like right? how do you compare i mean c- cities are always more secular anyway you know as a baseline and how do you compare like some kinds of whatever western liberal thinking that i might have got come into like all of the people we killed like the tons of thousands of civilians we killed yeah, in afghanistan right. like what is that calculus and yeah, yeah you know i think it's it's just it's maddening and i yeah i mean i i do feel like I, I think a lot of people this week are like reading about all of our war crimes and stuff and kind of like mm-hmm. getting back up to like, holy shit, like this is the cost of this was just so immense. And, um, you know, I, I think though that the people celebrating us getting out, we're not necessarily saying that we now are going to have nothing to do with this country. Like, I don't believe in isolationism. I think like we're all connected. I think countries do have a responsibility to each other. I think we can have interactions that are just not through the military. I think that's the the key here, which yeah. is that like, we need to have diplomatic relationships. We need to have like sort of civil society relationships. We just don't need to have, you know, thousands of US troops in this country. Well, that's the thing. And just kind of, it just seems like the, this, the relationship to, the, to Afghanistan as a colony or neo-colony was just, it's like qualitatively distinct compared to all the other quote unquote successful versions of U S imperialism, because there was like, uh, there was a, like a, what's the, how do you say this? Like a lively dynamic kind of exchange relationship between like the U S and Japan or the U S and Korea, where this is a burgeoning economy. And like there, there's a, there's interchange and intercourse between these two countries. So Afghanistan was a military occupation and the main source of revenue, it seems was either grants or opium, you know, for the, for the majority of the country and it was this kind of like very um, infantilizing relationship between the two. It wasn't, and you know, like I know I'm going to sound like like a like a modernizer when I say this, but like if Afghanistan's <laughs> going to like Afghanistan needs like a foundation, like a material foundation um, for it to for it for it to become what the United States wanted it to become. It wasn't going to be that way as long as the United States kind of just kind of kept 
kind of retain this attitude of sort of like this charity case where they're just going to pour money into it and just kind of um, hope that if they just follow XYZ pattern that they will become the template of another modern nation, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, in Korea, Korea at the time that the U.S. started occupying was basically, I mean, they, they had the inherited colonial infrastructure of Japan, but otherwise it was like basically a non-developed, yeah, yeah. like right. complete client state that needed to be. And then after the Korean War had been raised, you know, but That's why Park I mean, Chung-hee I think so maybe, great. yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean, maybe, right. Maybe one distinction, though, is that it, it seems like in the Afghan case, like a lot more money was spent on weapons yeah. and army infrastructure than other kinds yeah, of Yeah, it was like money laundering for a bunch of weapons contractors. It wasn't yeah. put into like, think about what is a modern nation, what is a successful civil society and all that stuff. It seems to me, I don't know. Um, I will say the other thing is like when I think about what goes on in East Asia and all the talk about like what should the United States do towards China and Hong Kong and all that stuff, I was always, I often thought back to like, mm-hmm. well, it might be better in some short term, uh, in some short term sense of like, if the United States immediately intervened and protected the lives of people in Hong Kong and Taiwan and Xinjiang, mm-hmm. right? But like long term, like the Middle East is the is the is the sort of scenario that you think about when you think about like, does this stuff actually work in the long term? And I think this just kind of um, further under underscores that like you can't that's, that's imperialist thinking to think that you can just rule the whole world on their behalf. Yeah. All right. Third topic is the chair. We're going back to <laughs> pretty big transition. <laughs> yeah, we're going back to uh, school. Students are back. I biked around campus the other day to meet. Uh, I was meeting Sam, one of our listeners, and uh, he was on campus. <laughs> nice. And uh, so I biked through, and all the freshmen were on campus for pre-freshman orientation. And it was kind of sad, you know, they're all in masks and kind of huddled yeah. up. And first of all, every year I get older, like the college freshman just seems like just so much younger. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, these are just babies, you know, like they're children and they're so, and you can kind of sense, <laughs> like you can see more of like how weirdly fake all their confidence is strutting around campus and stuff. And she's like, these kids are just these like scared little dorks you know? <laughs> which makes me like them more than i used to you know before i was like i don't want to be anywhere close to like a college student you know and then um yeah no and offense to andy anyway students. i was just like it was just weird because it was like it, it it seems like the start of this school year is like not going very well in terms of covid transmissions and stuff like that I don't know what there is to be done. Like, I don't think that they can shut down schools for a second year in any sort of way. Like, it's impossible. Yeah. Like, you, I'm sorry, you just can't do it. Like, uh, the sort of, and I don't think anyone necessarily really disagrees with that. Do you? Like, it, I just see like a bunch of like weird like uh, straw manning going on where like one epidemiologist says like, you know, did you see that tweet that everyone was dunking on saying like, well going to school only really started in the 18th century or something like that. Oh my like, God. Okay, come on, wait, come on. You are not making a good case. case yeah. It's like the kids need to go back to school. I'm sorry. You know, like it's not, it's not, I mean, these, these kids are miserable yeah. being isolated in this sort of way. Um, the parents are miserable, uh, you know, having to not, having to juggle work and childcare at the same, like there's no alternative. Well, are you it just talking seems about like we're university stuck in or, or, or public schooling? 
Uh, mostly public schooling, but also the universe. I just think that all this stuff has to start again. And it, it's too bad. And that school should be very vigilant. And they should quarantine when they can. And they should make sure that everyone, especially at the university where all the kids are old enough to be vaccinated or vaccinated. And then, you know, yeah. just pray for the best. Like, I don't know what else can be done. I think um, classes are going to go online in a lot. Of, I mean, they have gone online. Like, I think, right. I think UNC yeah. already went online. Um, and that's yeah, because they had like... For the second year, rather, like I was going to say they're always the first. I know like, they have a really early semester. That's why they like. I know. Next year we're going to have a yeah. later semester, so nobody notices when we go on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what if we start in October? Yeah. <laughs> Let's start at the heaviest news cycle. So we're only going to do school and election years in November. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. Also, they you know. They didn't do very good PR. They had that tweet where all the kids were drinking from the yeah, water. Yeah, what is that? At the is old that well. What is that? There's this thing on campus. It's the old well, and the kids go drink from it um, when they start their freshman year, I guess. I don't know. I had never, I will say that I lived in that town for the majority of my childhood, and I have never seen anyone drinking okay. from that water fountain. <laughs> and so it was a little bit strange to me because I was like, it's like, I didn't even know it had a water fountain on it. I just thought it was like a couple columns, you know, that they were like the old well, and they would just put it in photos when they were doing the basketball game. But I don't know. Apparently, kids drink from it, and all these kids are drinking from a water fountain in this huge line. I was like, this is disgusting. Oh, God, that's horrible. <laughs> um, anyway, I know, that was a very long introduction to The Chair. Uh, the Chair is a television <laughs> show on Netflix. I, you guys coerced me into watching it and I watched the whole thing last night. It's somewhat short. Was that the whole series? Short. Is there going to be a second season? I don't think it's been renewed yet. Yeah, but I feel oh. like they definitely wrote it so that it could be. Definitely. Picked up, right? Yeah, there wasn't any like. I was hungry like, for more. Yeah, nobody like, nothing really happened. So uh, for those who have not watched, <laughs> we're probably going to show spoil some of it for you. So if, if you really want to watch this show, then you can turn the show off right now. We won't be upset, but. I don't know. Not that it's not like a show that's heavily plot driven. It's not like no. Game of Thrones, where it's just like, oh well, I don't, I don't know any other thing about Game of Thrones, but you know, Dragons. the elves have invaded. Orcs have invaded the elf kingdom <laughs> and and stolen the magic sword. You know, it's not childlike stuff like that. But um, so, Sandra O oh is the newly uh, hired, newly elected chair of an English department. And the, at a school, I don't know what school it's based on. Do you know? It's called Pembroke on the show. I was uh, going to say, I think it's a combination of like Amherst Williams and Brown because they mentioned it's an Ivy. Yeah. But it's also oh, it's a, an a Ivy. small liberal arts college in Massachusetts. But I had questions. Oh, about the... do you know where it was shot? It looked like where I went to college, it but it wasn't. Yeah. Oh, it's shot in Pittsburgh. Really? Which is where? Random. At University yeah. of Pittsburgh or at like Case Western? Where? No, there's uh, someone I watched with a, a few friends, some listeners, um, and they looked it up. And there's a couple of schools, I, um, like smaller campuses in Pittsburgh, not UPIT. Oh, that's like, really well, pretty. Like, yeah. Okay. It's nice. So um, she's the head of the department, and the department is undergoing some turmoil because like they don't have high enough enrollments or something like that, and the school is losing money, right? And so she has to, what is the plot of the show? I can't even tell you, like, what's the problem that she's trying to solve? She's like, she has to fire, the dean at the beginning is asking her to, like, fire some of her staff, right? The older staff that is teaching, like, Tenured Melville full professors, yeah. Chaucer, yeah. stuff like that. Full There's professors. Like 
Yeah. There's two plot lines, right? One is about like the <laughs> Someone else described the show. Yeah, it's like, Jay, did you watch the show? <laughs> I did. I watched the whole thing. <laughs> I feel, to me, there are two plot lines. One is about the austerity university, you know, about structural adjustment and neoliberalism in universities. And then the other plot line to me is about <laughs> cancel culture and Me Too and about the culture wars on campus. So I felt like, yeah. and then they occasionally intersect. And then of course there's like Sandra O's like messy love life, which yeah. like kind of overlaps with some of the, the, the yeah. two main strands of plot. And I'd say we call it a stress show. There are these yeah. shows that come out where the person is just stressed out the whole time. <laughs> I generally don't watch them because I don't like watching people be stressed out. This is definitely a stress show where, like, you know, every Sandra Oh like has one. Sandra Oh is a wonderful actor, and I, I do not her, mean to yeah. say anything about this. Is not a commentary on her acting, but you know, she is she's just stressed the whole movie, she's, right? There's yeah. like there's no other emotion she feels except stress. Um, <laughs> anyway, the other plot on top of the austerity part is the generational divide within, yeah. which kind of actually overlaps with cancel culture too, right? It's right. true between it the sort of. Yeah. older white faculty and the younger POC woman faculty. Definitely. Right, who are doing like Hamilton revivals. Yeah, of, <laughs> yeah that uh, was so funny. Well, do you think that was... Okay, we can discuss... Let, uh, so there are a few things that I wanted to discuss on the show, but you guys can lead this conversation because I watched this show yesterday, but I watched it in the way that I watch a lot of television shows where if uh, by episode two, if a plot line is uninteresting to me, I just fast forward through it until I get to the next <laughs> Like it's the only plot line that interests me. <laughs> oh my god! So I might have missed some things, but I tried not to do that. But I did some of that, you know. So like, uh, I was in, uh, so the first thing I want to talk about is the you know, and I think that this is something that the show should be actually commended for quite a bit, which is that I think that like of all the shows that I've watched on television about an Asian American person of that ilk, mm-hmm. which is somebody who is very assimilated but not in, you know still has a parent who speaks the parent language, Sandra O oh is a Korean in the show um, and is working in a professional field where she's like not really surrounded by a lot of Asian people. But this was actually the most interesting and faithful uh, and realistic rendition of this that I've seen. Yeah. Right. There's no like kind of hokey, like, oh, my culture matters type of thing. There's no hokey like, oh, you know, like kind of my fat Greek wedding type of thing. Being like, yeah. hey, isn't it crazy that we're Greek? <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's none of that. It's just actually kind of, you know, her father speaks Korean to her. She mostly speaks English back to him. You know, she has an adopted daughter who is Mexican uh, by heritage. She, The daughter has a Korean name. The daughter is, uh, I don't know, six or something like that or eight and is struggling to, you know, the grandfather takes care of her. The two can't really communicate all that well. And then there's some scenes with like Sandra O's oh, extended Korean family that I thought like bordered on racist, but it was because they were so funny, you know, like it was like kind of hilarious. a funny, like the, there's like these two aunts that are like scheming and talking shit about everybody. And I was like, that's actually quite accurate. You know, <laughs> totally. if I was, if I was more sensitive, I'd be like, that's racist. You know, I'd be like, no, it's just accurate. You know, those two aunts would be, talk- would be talking in that way about everybody. It was very accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, um, so in that way, I give the show an a, like a very high marks and yeah. not that anyone cares, but you know, I think it was pretty good. Tell me what you think as a fellow Korean. Andy, you can't speak on <laughs> can't this. Can't speak on this. Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, Chinese hair. Right. <laughs> yeah, I thought it. I thought it was good. Like some of those scenes kind of reminded me of like in the farewell, but in a more kind of comedic register here. And um, yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I think it was. I think I really liked the interactions with the dad in particular with Sandra right. and her dad on yeah. screen. I thought that was great. And um, 
There's a really funny part, like the Sanrio part totally yeah, cracked funny. me up. There were like a couple of funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah just like yeah. the grandfather <laughs> kind of won't, let the, won't let the granddaughter bring a Hello Kitty in because uh, he still he won't allow any Japanese thing into his <laughs> He's house. He's not over colonialism. <laughs> yeah, 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 which <laughs> might seem extreme to some people, but there are definitely some Korean people who are like that. You know, just like, I'm like, like Toyota to my car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, to my house. How dare you? <laughs> Your grandma was like that, Andy? Yeah, until we got a Nissan Altima, and it was like, great value, handled great. So she's like, all right, I'm over it. Oh, she got mad at <laughs> she got over Japanese, Japanese cars. With the Nissan Altima. <laughs> um, no, it was super naturalistic, okay. which I liked a lot. Mike, actually, one thing I'm wondering, though, is like, you know, it was written by, and the showrunner was uh, Amanda Peet. Amanda Peet. And uh, I think Anne Wyman is the name of the academic who yeah. half wrote it, or you know, wrote probably most of it, right? Because um, it's based on her experience. I don't think either one, I mean, I know Amanda's not Korean, right? Like neither of them knows Korean. So I wonder how much was that like Sandra Oh or the the actor who played the dad kind of just, or the, all the actors themselves kind of just like blocking it out themselves. I think they had yeah. a, I think they had a producer and a writer who was Korean though. Okay. So, but then, yeah. and, I and I guess I wonder like, what too. is the order? Like, do they decide first we want Sandra Oh to play this and then we're going to write this whole subplot or was it? I think so. I right? think yeah. they did. Yeah. I think they did. Yeah. Uh, which which was, is cool. Yeah. It was like very, like you said, natural. It was like accurate. Like you could, I think a lot of people could identify with that sort of. And the show was really, you know, it is interesting. I, I'm surprised to hear that the people who, not surprised, but it is somewhat edifying to hear that the people who made it were white. Not not in saying like, you know, it's cool that the people in power were white, but in that, you know, there was it was not your typical like white people do another culture type of thing. Right. Because it was allowed to just stand for itself and not be this like kind of safari ride through like totally. Korean Americanness, Right. Which would have made the show intolerable. Mm-hmm. You know, like I just feel like I can't watch this anymore because. Um, Safari, right? That's yeah, who yeah. like who like it's not particularly relevant to the show. Yeah, but and it's also kind of insulting. But this one was cool. I don't know. The I, like yeah. I said, the relationship with the father was like pitch perfect. I thought um, the dad was like such a Korean dad, you know, like uh, and um, and the aunts were hilarious. Anyway, yeah. um, but a, that part was not the important part of the show, which I also kind of appreciate. <laughs> I, I will say at the very beginning, there's a picture of Sandra Oh with Daniel Kim, <clears throat> who is um, oh my gosh, supposedly that was the ex-boyfriend. And my Paul reaction Tom. was like, oh, that's just like Sandra Oh's character with Daniel Kim, the real actor in real life. And that like, oh, oh no, my friends are playing. Oh, well, he has to be, has to be a character the... in the show. <laughs> no, I just thought, supposed to be the Paul's home. Yeah, yeah. I was like, away. oh really? I just Korean professor? people have pictures of Daniel Day Kim on their fridge all the time. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> that must have been just a picture that Sandra took of Daniel right? Exactly. Daniel Kim at some like, like on her iPhone film festival or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, like also the David Duchovny thing was hilarious. That was good. Yeah. Right. I skipped through that. Into, that I will say every time his name is mentioned, I just fast forward. Oh, and then I fast forward the entire episode that he was on. I was just like, I don't oh, know. I thought that was pretty funny. Why? I don't know, because I, I actually thought of all the plot devices or whatever. Like, I thought that was like the least interesting to me. Like, I don't. Yeah. You know, I think it was it's very generally... like Keanu in Will You right, Be My yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, wait, Jay. The exact same you function. said you were only going to watch two episodes. Why did you watch all six? 
Yeah. I couldn't really go to sleep. And also I found that as I was fast forwarding through the episodes that they were very short. And so then I was like, I might as well get to the end here. (laughs) I I don't know how long it took me to watch the whole show, but I'm pretty sure it was under two hours. So it wasn't that bad. You know, mm, it's not bad. I mean, the show's short. It's only the episodes are like 25 minutes it's long. So it's not yeah, like it's, it's an hour long yeah. show. Did you guys, so like as a professor, Andy, and as a guy who's reported a ton on campuses, Jay, like, did you guys feel like the culture war stuff was real? Did it feel natural? Well, let's explain it first, right? Which is that there's like sort of this unhinged professor who's like cool, right? Bill. And he oh, does Bill? like a, Bill. he's like, Bill talking about fascism and he does like a Heil Hitler salute and some kids are filming it and then it goes viral and there's all these kind of like students on campus being like you're a Nazi you know and there are all these confrontations with the professor where the students are you know acting in the way that I think some people who are very afraid of cancel culture would expect those students to act right like it wasn't a I don't think that it was a particularly uh sympathetic portrayal of those students in any sort of way. Do yeah. You? I thought yeah. it was, I think that was the worst part of the show was the students parodying some imagined, like, I don't Mob. know. Like, right. Some imaginary, like non-academics person's um, opinion of, of, or a fantasy of what, how students act. And like the actors themselves looked like they were 30. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? Like, yeah, they they Andy was or? so bothered by that. He was like, did they bring also in like, for this, for this or something? They like made all of the activist kids who are saying this sort of stuff into the POC kids. That was the other know? thing I was thinking. I know. It's like yeah. all the black kids. I was like, first of all, at a school like this, there would not be that many black students, first of all, you <laughs> yeah. know, period. Well, and secondly, the kids saying this would mostly be white, you know, and like maybe, that, yeah. that part actually did bother yeah, me. Yeah, actually. Like, like, have you been to one of these classrooms or like encountered yeah. one of these activist yeah. kids? Like, they're not. Right. They're not like, they're not who you think, who you're saying they are. Go ahead. Well, the, yeah, the diversity aspect interested me because I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional, but I do think it's true that a lot of these really rich schools like the Ivies or the Amherst and Williams actually are very diverse campuses because they're need blind. And, but that reflects the fact that they're rich and they can afford to give a lot of aid to people, uh, to the students they want to admit to the campus. Um, so those campuses paradoxically or ironically are like more diverse than you might than a lot of like less rich schools. The public universities. Public schools are just like. Comparative though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, right? not to this extent. But, right, though. sure. But then this raises yeah. the question. So I don't know if they were doing that intentionally, yeah. but, the, but that kind of undermines the whole bigger plot point, which is that it's a school right. that is like, uh, you know, trying to penny pinch at this point, which like, if you look at the endowments oh. of the top small liberal arts colleges, they are huge. They're multi-billion endowments, right? Yeah. Right, but Harvard is like 8% black, for example. You know, so it's not in it? the show. Yeah. In these classrooms, it's like 30 percent, 40 percent black. And all the black students are also happening the ones that are being so unreasonable about right. this, uh, about this right. flare up. You know, like I, yeah. I was actually more than annoyed about that. I, I will say that as like borderline offended by it. Not, you know, not that there aren't unreasonable people of all races, you know. <laughs> But it's like it really is when kids are at, you know, like when these types of things happen where you're just like kind of roll your eyes and you're like, what's going on? Like, please don't do this. I don't know. I thought some I thought I found them kind of admirable. So I thought it was cool. <laughs> Tanner, I was like, oh, was they, one of them, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, they cast all the cool activist kids in black and brown. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, wait, I think it, really you felt like the show was being positive towards them. I 
I, I, there were some moments like where they ambiguous, like ambiguous at least. I felt like they were I did, pretty yeah, clear because that I think no, but like at some points they were serving as the moral conscience of the university, and that was accepted by some of the more woke faculty. <clears throat> at other times they were being like more thorn yeah. in the sidey, annoying, but that's also their role. So I didn't find it that. Yeah, no. like the but you didn't. I found that I thought that the show is extremely revanchist in a lot of its politics. Maybe That's I misread it, but like, what's I revanchist felt like mean? Revanchist meaning like, like I don't know. Oh, like backwards, <laughs> kind of yeah. like reactionary. Reactionary um, to trying to like, but like of what though? Because they were critical of the dean as well. I'm pretty sure, right? Critical. Yeah, but I also think that they were saying. I think that they were being revanchist, which means like kind of nostalgic about like a past. Yeah, right? like around right. Joan and. Yeah, um, yeah, about the older professors yeah. who like just wanted to teach their classes, right? right? And who thought that Chaucer was great right. and shouldn't be muddied up yeah, with right, like right. raps about Chaucer. Like yeah. the, the, there's like this long speech about how Chaucer that. that was awesome. That I was just like, this is the exact speech that when I was a graduate student, I took this class at Barnard about Chaucer because I had never read Chaucer. I actually didn't barely knew who Chaucer was because you know I had taken my education to that point so unseriously. <laughs> And I enjoyed the Chaucer class, but I remember that the professor who taught the Chaucer class, who, by the way, was fantastic, you know, um, gave that exact speech, you know. She was wow. Like, There's farting in Chaucer. Oh, yeah. It's funny <laughs> and it's badass. And learning all, you know, yeah, learning yeah. Middle English is cool, <laughs> right? And so, uh, and then I had to like memorize the first chapter of it and do it in whatever. Is it Middle English? I think it's Middle English, right? And um, yeah. I, I thought it was like, like wow, this is like, sh- does every Chaucer scholar say this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chaucer. Maybe your professor was a consultant on the she show. She might have been. She might have been. I think she was a big deal in the Chaucer community. Oh, so there you um, go. She was cool. Um, actually, I would say in graduate school, of all the classes I took, maybe that was the best yeah. one. Um, anyway, but it that felt like cool. that. It was sort of like that. It was like, oh, well, the Marvel scholars are cool, you know? And then when there's a scene for the listeners, okay, so what happens is that there's a young black professor who is part of the English department and she is sort of grappling, she teaches early American English, which is also what this older professor teaches, old white professor. And there's a real clash in terms of their styles because the old black or the old white professor just sort of lectures and the younger person like has them tweet their favorite lines from Moby Dick, for example, right? I felt like that sort of, I felt like they were very unkind to the younger black professor and her pedagogy. Like, I think they were rolling their eyes at her. You I, didn't think that? I think they were. But there's I, literally a scene where they're doing Hamilton yeah. skits. Maybe this is just my own feeling about Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> but like, uh, but man, it was, it was, it was terrible. You know, like I would never have wanted to be in that, I in think, that classroom. Yeah. And they take this great care in showing how all these kids are just like smiling and are so happy about this and they're like so engaged and i felt like that was like i felt like that was like the director's revulsion towards that you know like i think they want you to like like tammy was saying earlier i think there's they want at least like half the audience to identify with the students in those protests and i think you're supposed to generally get the sense that you're supposed to generally get the sense of like she's a very successful professor this is the future of the discipline I know yeah. people who do the tweet exercise as the way, and I just kind of find it too complicated. I'm not going to do that. But I know people who do like tweet, your assignment is to tweet XYZ about something. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Um, I know some of the I'm listeners like, of this episode. She's is aligned with the olds. Uh, I am aligned uh, with the olds. Maybe that's what it is. I, mean, I actually like, found is it, it was internalized a, I was racism that I'm expressing. I kind of yeah. like the olds. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the three of us or something. But if we all agree, I think the show was saying that, right? No, I I I disagree with you guys. Oh, you like the <laughs> show was like cool. saying it's cool to do Hamilton raps about. So about I actually Melville? thought the show was unfair to the old people. Oh, really? That's yeah. crazy. Because I love old people and I felt like these old people were so overdetermined and like Joan, stereotypical. But Joan was redeemed. Joan Joan was allowed to breathe a little bit, but like that other guy who kept falling asleep and like slapping her ass, like it was so backward. I just it was like, that's not uh, those, all old people. But there are you know? some, there are definitely some. Yeah. I mean the <laughs> Hamilton thing was kind of ridiculous in the tweet exercise, whatever, but like no, I did it I I maybe felt like what Amanda Pete wanted me to feel. <laughs> Which is really? what? Which was like, oh yeah, it's so great that like English can yeah. bring people to life this way and that people are so excited you think about that's literature. What they were saying? If I was oh, in that wow. Melville class and I was it. asked to perform something about Moby Dick, I would drop that class. Like I would drop that class I too. Would I'd be too. Like, I'm <laughs> out of here. Yeah, you would too. So what are we talking about here? Uh, I would too, but I would also be like, oh, those people love literature. Yeah. I don't I've, know. I just found it also like, you know, like I would just say that when they're showing all those faces, like all the faces were like young, you know, people of color, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And they're like enraptured by like rass about about fucking Melville. <laughs> I was offended. You know, it's just like I was like, right. I do not need fuck I know a lot about Melville. You know, I read all of Melville. It was an important thing that I did in graduate school. I find Melville to be one of the most important American or the most Amer- you sound important like David American author. Know, right? I did not need it fucking wrapped yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah. I'm sorry. You know, I didn't need to tweet out the fucking parts of it. Like, I don't know. I, I actually am somewhat conservative in these senses right. where I'm just like, I don't really understand. Like, you don't have to pander to students. Right. right? Oh my gosh. That's what the old says yeah. in the right. show. Right. That's how I felt. Yeah. It says just, the word pandering. You don't need to pan. And I don't think that, like, do I think that, like, there are forms of pedagogy that are preferred by like young people of color professors that are not pandering of course yes there are right there are different ways to engage but a hamilton style rap about melville and having them tweet out their favorite lines is pandering yeah. you know so i did feel that way and then i and then i felt like the show people wanted me to feel that way but apparently not cuz like maybe <laughs> maybe this is like a side of my own like narcissism or, here where i'm just like if i feel that way everyone must feel that or the way. show is saying if the show is saying like they can only understand it if it's like delivered in rap form right but they couldn't right, they couldn't right, understand right. It i didn't feel like they were saying that i felt like they were saying the future of pedagogy is to allow some flexibility and she's given them an open format exam and they chose to do this musical format but other kids in the audience just wrote an essay or whatever. oh i think you totally imagined oh that. i think you're imagining <laughs> you like wrote a whole i think that it was her, a yeah. condemnation of that type of pedagogy i mean how are you supposed to teach the important parts of like billy bud or something like that if all you're doing is reciting lines within the text you know i don't know it's, <laughs> but they it's weird they were though it was it was, like, it was, a, it was rapping, a caricature they're just wrapping the they're no, just they were interpreting the they were interpreting the text it was a hermeneutic exercise yeah. of interpreting was... the plot you know there was no actual com- i don't know they, I also just don't think any undergrads would have done that. So they would just be like reading it the night yeah. before and then, you know. That that I believe. And just like knowing just enough yeah. to like bullshit two paragraphs. That's, so, I don't I know. I would drop the class. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was a terrible student, so it's very difficult for me to, um, you know, think about any of this. But I don't know. Like I've. The, the I mean, school I went, college I went to, graduate school, the classes, like, you know, I don't know. I 
enjoyed being treated like an adult who could read and think, yeah. right? And um, I don't think that necessarily has to always just be in lecture, but I also, and I don't think it's racialized really, you know, right. I don't think it's like, and that <laughs> I also found that to be like odd in the show. She's like, listen, all these, all the, you know, it seemed like white professors teach like this, you know, yeah. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I took a Shakespeare class with a professor or a couple of Shakespeare professors with a cl- teacher who could have been one of the old stereotypes that they had on the show, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and it was great. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. Was, was, it, like, over, was it under-enrolled? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, um, but the whole English department is kind of under-enrolled, you know, and then there was also like, you know, I don't know. It, like they, the one thing they did is I think that they got the types of English professors like totally spot on correct, you know, like we did have a cool, <laughs> we did have a cool guy, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the guy yeah. who wrote the novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cool guy was like, oh man, what was it? The cool guy was, uh, I think he was actually in early English literally like he like did like natty bumpo and stuff like that you know but he was yeah. still like the cool guy i never t- i wasn't an english major so i didn't take it i took like two english classes so i don't quite know but, the um the big uh crowd uh guy the guy with big crowds at columbia was james shapiro who did shakespeare and yeah that people packed the halls for that class he was any i think he might have been like a more together version of bill is kind of he had this kind of working class uh, effect, but he'd been doing it for a while, so he wasn't exactly old fuddy duddy. He was like exciting and dynamic. And he probably gave the same speech about that you the same Chaucer speech about Shakespeare has sex and cursing and like he's a badass, you know. Yeah. What I think is interesting though, and there's like I had this conversation with um you know a friend of the show, Nikhil, last night who was all who was an English major at Columbia, and like everyone was an English at Columbia, and and looking back, and I and I was asking him like why is it that English becomes like the battleground on which all this culture war shit happens like why is english so central to this tv show and he didn't he didn't watch the show but i think it's true that english <laughs> was a big deal at columbia and big deal at a lot of these schools not because of english itself not because of the shakespeare class not because of the chaucer class or melville it's because english just kind of is the home for all these big movements like ethnic studies queer studies yeah, interpretation yeah and and people yeah. uh you know you could cynically say they take english as a means to an end to talk about something else that's not just right. the text and the show itself kind of conflated the two in terms of or, or it kind of like didn't really capture that like all these classes are just about the text and i think the reason english is important and exciting on campuses is because they're more than just about the text they're really about um these theories and these debates and blah blah, blah. they kind of hint at that a little bit at the edge of the show but the way they portray the classroom um is and, and the way they kind of like you said as if it's a revanchist show jay they come back to like this love of reading this love of interpretation that you know bill gives a speech and sandra and that makes sandra o realize how much he loves teaching emily dickinson poems and like that's not that's probably not what motivates yeah. most people in english departments they're probably they probably just want to like talk about culture and they just right. and they just they kind of latch on to like a particular set of authors as a way to talk about you know these bigger things Hmm. Um, yeah, because eh. I, I kind of thought that Bill's speech was like the fact that Bill giving a speech about how great it is to read a novel somehow like changes Sandra O's mind is like that. I thought that was kind of corny, but also like yeah, it was like a, like a TV was a strange show speech. But I generally agree with that sentiment more than like I you know again I have ext- I, I would say that I have a borderline almost like right not right wing 
because it's not about Republican Democrat party or my own politics, but in terms of literature, I do think that yeah. you should just study the text. You know, I don't think that you should talk about the particular opinions and politics of the author. Um, unless, you know, it, like it can be part of the conversation. I don't think it should be a central part of the conversation. And I, you know, but I only, I only think about it cause I just approach it as a writer, you know? Um, and yeah. I think that reading through text is important to becoming a writer. Um, and I think that should be the function of an English department is to turn people into better writers, but I don't know. Actually, like outside of it, like, why does it matter? Sorry, it's just mm-hmm. books. What? No, I was just going to say, I don't think anyone disagrees with that, though. I don't think that English practitioners who are dipping into cultural studies and psychoanalysis and whatever other disciplines are would would say that that critique the critique function comes before the close reading function. I don't think anyone would say that, would they? I mean, I I I feel like that is maybe like a caricatural view of the a new currents in literature. No, yeah, I mean everyone who does it, and that's why I never did English. Like I tried for a while, I was like, no, I just can't like read these old poems enough. But I like I wanted to do the theory, <laughs> and that and I found I found other ways to do it. Uh, but yeah, I think people who actually stick to it are doing the close reading stuff. But I think what initially attracts the best and the brightest at liberal arts colleges mm. to go into English is because, uh, do they go into English? Say what? I mean, <laughs> I don't know about it anymore, the but there was, there definitely was a moment where like English was the okay. discipline of the humanities, yeah. right? In a way that it is kind of in crisis now, like, which the show is kind of reflecting. right. The show is about how that's not true. Right. Anymore. But there was a sense yeah. of like, I don't really know what I want to major in, but I know all the smart people do English. So I'm going to go into English yeah, and then you learn mean. the tools well, of that. It's interesting. But the, the other interesting thing that you just reminded me of, Jay, is they have this one line in the show that I think might be true, and they don't really explore it, which is that the main thing where enrollments are going up is creative writing, and everything is going down. And I, I've heard that's true. Like, undergrads want to, if they major in English, they want to become content producers. They want to, like, write, I don't know, blogs or write for online, whatever. And that is like a, that is like a, um, a distinctive shift in terms of mm. people are taking less classes where classes about reading and literature and all that stuff are like maybe about the same, but there does seem to be a greater interest of making the English discipline, a discipline of creative writing. In undergrad. Yeah, that's, well, that's under, that's unfortunate because none of those mm. kids are going to learn to re- write unless they read a whole bunch of books first. That sounds know? so cranky. Um, <laughs> I know. We are no, so it's true. Oh no, yeah, I know. You know. But I just, I, but in a- like you need to read basically everything from like, you know, and this is something that gets debated at Columbia where you went to school. I went to grad school all the time, which is just like, well, what do you do about these freshman intro courses where they read Herodotus and shit, right? You did that, right? When you were a freshman. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I think it's necessary if you want to become a writer, you have to read everything from Herodotus to like Donald Bartleby to like, you know, whatever fucking pale fire, you know, like whatever, like you, and you should think about them all as texts, you know, and you should read all of them and you should incorporate them into your writing i don't think that it's particularly instructive to put an 18 year old kid in a creative writing class because right. they're not gonna like it's not a question of they have nothing to say it's like most likely they've had they've not read anything and so they don't know you know they have no foundation on which you can even teach them to write um but you know that that, that like that doesn't surprise me i mean you know universities are now client service yeah. jobs right basically and that if that's what the students want then you give them what they want because they're paying so much money. Yeah, I just kind of think it's an int- I don't know if it's good or bad, but it does strike me as very like notable. Like, what could you possibly teach an eighteen-year-old kid about how to writing to write? Yeah, you know? but in in writing classes, you also read. 
You read actually a lot. Um, I took or I have I don't whatever know. university so I, writing I, at Columbia where it's just like crank out an oh, assignment UW. every week. Yeah, but that's more just like basic composition. Yeah. Composition. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I never wrote um, a creative writing class. I'm talking about like a fiction uh, workshop, Tammy, where like the yeah, function yeah, is to like read? read each other's work and critique it every week. No, you don't. Like you do it so in workshops. Yeah. Right. right. But it, yeah, I guess I've been in more like hybrid classes. But but I hear you. I mean, I, yeah, I think reading is really important, and understanding the canon of the place you are is really important. But I think like. I also think, like, if you replaced Herodotus with, like, someone else, you wouldn't die. I... Herodotus is great, though. I don't know. I'm like, sure. But there's, you know, I don't... replace it with what? Like, you know? Like, kids already read all the other stuff now. I don't know. I, I feel like the critique that, like, the canon right now is, like, super... Like, the canon not being, like, the canon that's accepted by old people like my neighbors, but the canon that is actually read by kids who are young right now is quite diverse, Right. Um, I guess what I mean by the Herodotus thing is though, because I think like in the debates, like at Columbia or at Reed or other places where there's kind of this core curriculum debate that's been going on, like there are also other traditions, like non-Western traditions or whatever, where you could pull like an ancient or canonical text from that tradition into your canon. Yeah, that's so that I just that happens a lot. Do do that? I'm sorry. Do do they not do that? It seems like they they hadn't been. I mean, I think it's changing. They do it a little. But I guess that that's what I meant about like Herodotus. Like you could pull in like yeah. So they read like the insert mentions texts. Yeah, you know there could be something else. Classes like East Asian, South Asian civilization, and that's a counterpart to what Columbia calls contemporary civilization, which is so they read like Rumi and Plato to NATO. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or like, yeah, because I was thinking, like, when I was in college, I really, I studied philosophy, and I really wanted to get a sense of, like, non-Western philosophy, but they absolutely had none. Like, you yeah. had to go to East Asian studies. Oh, right. Totally. totally. Um, oh, they, they didn't have it in East Asian studies? There's no metaphysics in the East. You could really? do East Asian studies that would be, it would essentially be, like, ways of thought or, like, yeah. literature, but it wasn't, like, philosophy, and oh, it wasn't that's... counted toward the philosophy major. I took an East Asian art oh. class in college, and I took a Hinduism class and oh, like a good. Buddhism class. I should have They're all done. great. I mean, I, know, you know. I mean, awesome. yeah, no, I would say in college, I took those core classes, and they made very little impression on me. And then it was years later that I was like, I wish I paid more yeah. attention. I was really, I was, right. I was probably that person I who was you. like, yeah, I wish we did all sorts of non-Western stuff instead. And then as I got older and looked back on that, I was like, no, that's kind of silly. <laughs> Like okay, so you, need, you need, you need, you need these foundations. <laughs> you need to get grounded. And most of this yeah. non-Western stuff was kind of created after the fact to create a sort of equivalent uh, to the okay, Western. Okay, so Canada. I have an example. So, for example, uh, that there was a period of time where I was teaching at this private school in San Francisco when I was in my twenties, and uh, they had fashioned this curriculum. This is for ninth graders, right? And the ninth grade mm-hmm. curriculum, the first semester, and this is all to. This is all marketing based, right? It was to compete with the other private schools. And so they decided mm-hmm. that what they were going to do is they were going to have in the English department, we weren't going to teach like Western texts at all. But the first semester, we we're going to teach Chinese texts. And the second semester, we we're going to teach uh, uh, the Islamic world texts, right? And this was like basically saying in the future, everything's going to be China in the Islamic world. And so for the no. freshman year, we read, uh, we read, uh, this book called like uh, I forget what it was called, but it was about shoe binding, foot binding. Mm-hmm. It was a terrible book, Whoa. terrible book. Wait. You know, like horribly written. There's nothing you can learn That's except so about about shoe, about foot binding, which then does Wait, not make it a, it a literature course. What was it a history book or it was like a a short a story? No, it was like a novel. Okay. 
but the novel is just like bad, yeah. you know? And so oh then you're gosh. just, all you're doing is talking about foot binding, yeah. right? And so then after that, like, it's a little bit looser. So I would like be like, here's Wang Wei poem. Here's some like, you know, Lao Tzu poems. Like here, this is what it's like. But that stuff is very hard to impart upon a 14 year old, yeah. you know? And so then I was just like, well, what do I do? I don't read Chinese, you know? And so <laughs> yeah. like, what, what's this next text we're supposed to read? And then the Islamic world curriculum was like, we read Persepolis, the graphic novel. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? And I was just like. That's like, for the Islamic world, though. I know, right? And that's like, hilarious. I was like, can't, like it's not even th- that's like a Persian thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's just like, and she's French. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. but <laughs> there we go. So then I was just like, can we just maybe we should just read yeah. fucking the Scarlet Letter, and I'll tell you about symbolism. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I know. Like, it's so, so hard. Like, but yeah. that was the type. I don't know. Maybe it's because I have you know I've been like a teacher at some of those institutions, although I have not been a professor. Um, I'm just so resistant to that type of stuff. And maybe that's yeah. why I viewed the show that way, because I was just like, I hate, you know, I just can't stand that stuff. It's just like, I'm, I, I'm so allergic to it because I don't think it's, I, I think it's actually a point where like, you know, like the, all the people on the right who are screaming at the, all this stuff, it's like, the reason why they're effective is because there is some fatigue with this, you know, like there is questions that people have in good faith about the value of these types of educations where it's just like freshman year English, we're going to learn about how women are oppressed in China, you know, and just like, that's not a literature course, right? <laughs> like, uh, like, isn't there something that we can do there? We can try and teach these like 15 year olds that reading is great, you yeah. know, and yeah. not just the political idea behind this terrible novel that we all had to read, <laughs> you know, that has zero literary that's value. That's so unfair, though. That's so bad. That they Why is that, that unfair? No, not that your thing. I'm just saying like there's. I, like, that's what I thought tweeting about Melville and doing a Hamilton rap. About, <laughs> yeah, yeah. About, no, that uh, was very, that's very ham handed. <laughs> well, that, yeah. About Moby Dick was. It's like, that's what you're getting out of Moby Dick is like some sort of like weird, like, uh, I would, I yeah, I would, I would say the other thing that yeah. kind of is going on with the show is I wonder if someone's going to write about this is that it does kind of make it seem like the the issue with English is the content is too old, uh, or the issue with academia is that the content is too out of touch, and I, that might be like how it's being perceived and debated. But like, there is still like this meta issue, like, well, the hundred thirty thousand dollar professor isn't really doing that much to the bottom line and if you just kind of like create turn enrollment to this like larger average it's like it would be it's not that different if like they're all in one class or another they're all evenly distributed right Mm -hmm. like the crisis is about or or, to the extent there is a crisis it would be about a wouldn't be affecting the rich schools it's really affecting the middle class and the the much poorer schools that don't have people Mm -hmm. applying to them and also it's about like the competition to build like nice student centers and gyms and yeah. they build like football stadiums and hire, you know, T1 football coaches and, totally. and administrators. Like these costs are all several fold bigger than your, your, your most highly paid full professor. So, I mean, yeah. I, this is obviously a perspective that is like my, me and my peers have a stake in saying, but like that, that, yeah. that is like the thing that we talk about that the kind of crisis of the humanities in a, in a lot of ways is kind of like a distraction from like the real reason why tuition went up, you know, 200% in our lifetime. It wasn't, it wasn't paying the Chaucer scholar too much money, right? It was all this other stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, oh yeah, and, that's true. And it's like, yeah. and it's a competition that they briefly hint at, and I bet if they do future seasons, they'll talk more about this. That's it's been documented. I think, I think the New York Times did a good article about this. How Definitely. like the U.S. news addiction to like not even the addiction, like this, 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 this demand that you compete with each other in the U.S. news forces schools to spend money even if they don't want to spend it 
to keep up with each other because they don't want to yeah. be left behind. And then this pushes up everyone's tuition up more and more. And then banks are willing to, you know, give everyone student debt. So, you know, tuition keeps going up and it gets ke- keeps getting paid. So there's these meta issues that I think are a little bit, I think, I mean, I assume the writers know this, like the, the, the um, Annie Wyman like is in academia. I think she, she probably gets it and maybe for just like, expediency sake did not want to put it all into one series but i think there's well, a... i think it's hinted at even with the duchovny storyline because like there's the whole issue of like the donor class and it's right. the pressures that it exerts on the university right. the you know the capital maintenance like the nice campus all that right. stuff you know so I, it isn't you know a major plot line but i think it's there yeah. like um but I, yeah i think i do wonder if someone's our... going to come away from the show which is that the problem with English is that the professors themselves are too stodgy and they're like hmm. hurting themselves. You think so? I, f- I, I still hope. feel I like, hope. I felt like they were on the side of the old professors, but I kind of got really that vibe. They're pretty bit. unsympathetic towards the young professors. And no, I don't think so. Um, I That's don't know. So if you look on Twitter, yeah. everyone is like, I love Sandra O oh and Yasmin. The I don't know the name of the actress. Like the who on Twitter? Like all the, tw- all the Twitter love is Sandra O oh and Yasmin. Or like the hero, really? the hero wins. Well, as an actor, because I thought that the actor who played the professor was great. Yeah, well, no, the I characters, just... like, like the universe. I mean, they were attached. This to gets into like identity politics. Was like, it's the. I mean, the speech that the woman gave, like, it was on the backs of black and yellow people that the university is built, and all the credit is given and all the money is given to the old white guy administrators. Yeah, and that's I think a lot of the. A lot of the sort that of that was very cheesy. Yeah, yeah, but it's also like I think a lot of the identification that's happening on social. I gotta media. do some ser- soul searching here because <laughs> I apparently totally misread this entire show. Well, you fast forwarded through half of it, so I did fast forward through thirty <laughs> yeah. percent of it, but like, um, <laughs> but it was because I was kind of an I was mildly annoyed, you know. I mean, I look first of all, I think it was a good show, you know. Like I, I, I watched it, which is a yeah, miracle. You're not a big TV person, and um. And uh, I was able to make it through it, but I don't know. I mean, I guess I am just very educated. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like, in terms of English pedagogy, maybe I'm like a stodgy old person. You know, I just, I just, none of that stuff is interesting to me. I don't think that kids need to be taught to be interested in Melville as long as the instructor is excited about Melville and can point out the parts of Melville that are totally revolutionary and totally interesting. And that's their job, you know, and the conversation that is about that should happen in a seminar form, right. Or in a lecture (laughs) where the kids can talk about it. Yasmin wasn't not doing that. That's the thing. Yeah. Wait, but she was doing that, but she was also allowing them to do this other thing. And Jay, if you were to, that was my takeaway, but I just felt like, I don't know. And I, this was a thing, my gen and my other thought, which I'll just repeat here is that I felt like it was totally overdetermined and unfair to have like, you know, the, just have it be like, Oh, the Asian and the black professor are the ones that are doing these new pedagogy things. And all the white ones aren't, you know, uh, which I think that's actually yeah, totally well, that's not true. I thought it was a f- unfair to the olds. Right. I actually kind of thought right. that was accurate. I though. didn't appreciate that. I think is that accurate? I think is that what you do, Andy, in your classroom? You have people rap part yeah, of like, no, the I, I have a whole Hamilton <laughs> Andy <syllabus>. was like, <laughs> I rap the syllabus. That's what I'm going to do tomorrow. <laughs> no, I mean, Sweet your favorite lines from Chinese history. There is a, there is a way in which, 
in grad school, everyone's like roughly the same age. Everyone's cool and young and hip. And you kind of imagine this is what academia is. And then you go to the institution itself and you immediately identify with, I've, I found like you kind of gravitate towards people, the few people you can identify with. And I think that, you know, women, minority, et cetera, like the, these yeah. tend to be fault lines that kind of, in, in a sad way, right? The, the kind of like, we, def, we kind yeah. of fall back upon them in the professional world in a way that when you're in college and everyone's like the same age and full of possibility, you think that you've, you're, you're over that, you know, but like when you go into academia, probably any industry, you're actually entering layers of history that are built into one industry. And it's kind of, it's very natural to see the one person of XYZ group kind of find some sort of affinity with the one person of another XYZ yeah. group. Well, I don't, I don't doubt that. Yeah. I know that, but that also they that they would, and, and, and but and but also that they might. That they would, I don't think I don't think Sandra was supposed to be seen as a super innovative instructor or anything. She's just teaching, yeah, that's true. Yeah, she's just yeah. reading Dickinson, but or, she is teaching Audrey Lord. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to the black students' dismay, right. after she <laughs> was accused of placing a gag order on she's a Dickinson the scholar. The last, at I think let's stop talking about this soon. But like the last thing I'll bring up <laughs> that I want you to you to reflect on is, um, you know, something that we talked about before. Which is like I don't know like what do if this is seen as like a portray- a lot of people watch this show I was surprised it was like one of the yeah. five most watched things on Netflix mm-hmm. I do think that the majority of people who watch the show are going to be very unsympathetic to the to the students who are protesting you mm-hmm. know and I wonder if we've reached this impasse in terms of college uh, or we've reached this point where the vast majority of people feel like college campus activism is silly in this form mm-hmm. right that. Um, and that, you know, this is for a variety of reasons. For the boomers, it's because they're like, you call that campus activism, you know? <laughs> in some ways, you know, it's For the very, very small population of leftists who are like skeptical of, you know, like identity type of stuff is for that reason, right? And then you have half the country who just hates it because, you know, they hate all this. They just hate, they're either, you know, they have certain very strong prejudices, let's yeah. say, against uh people speaking their mind especially if they look a specific type of way so i don't know what do you think like do you think that this is this period i i keep thinking about this all the time which is just like and i thought about it when that uh lady uh, that filipino woman tweeted that thing about like the dumplings and noodle book and there is like nobody supporting like that claim of cultural appropriation and everyone was just dunking on the woman for saying that a white woman couldn't make dumplings and noodles did you see that? No, I don't know what you're it talking about. It was like about. a whole day on Twitter where everyone was oh, like really? mad at this Filipino woman for even brief. And it was like the worst people in the world, you know? And it was a very conflicted moment for me because I was like, obviously, I hate food appropriation talk more than anybody. And I was annoyed that like all these people were like, you know. Um, but then I was like, but I hate these people more. Right. You know, So I can't. I actually am just going to not tweet about right. it because I don't want to encourage them. Um but, you know, I sometimes think that some of the co- uh, cultural conversations we had five years ago are, like, kind of coming to an end, right? And that... Um, well... The, sorry, go on. No, that's... that's I mean, one that's thing I was going to say was the, 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 the Heil Hitler thing was completely unrealistic. I don't think that would have gone that far. I think the real case would have been if he, like, quoted Mark Twain saying the N-word. Like, that's a real, that's a, that's a real mm-hmm. thing that I could see, like, triggering a debate about... Are you allowed to quote it? Are you allowed to say this word under any circumstances? Uh, and that feels like something that it, it could be a lively enough, you know, to to 
lead to like you can see both sides of the argument but you can also see how if he if bill shoots himself in the foot too many times he'll lose his job um because i mean the question is like well i mean part of your question jay is like what exactly was this campus protest about it was about something that in the show is very silly and yeah but that's why i think the show's revanchist yeah because i think that if the show wanted to make the kids seem serious they would have picked a more right, serious yeah. uh thing yeah. right but they picked this totally silly thing right. and they even show the kids like kind of filming him right which was ridiculous with, with their phones and laughing while they're doing it you know and being like haha we're gonna like and that i feel like that was totally not on the side of right. the student activists um, it's a good question i don't i guess i'll ask my maybe i'll ask my students if they are into this show at all or if this is only written by and for people like <laughs> us i think it's i think it's basically meant for like somebody exactly like me <laughs> 41 a bit cranky you know <laughs> loves literature <laughs> you're like no absolutely not Hates i reject all pedagogy. i reject all of your culturally <laughs> marxist interpretations of my of my beautiful texts <laughs> It's also for a lot of like. Um, please do, please do not wokeify right. the Dubliners. <laughs> or I mean, it's also for like uh, assistant professors, especially like ones right. who are yeah. like right. the one of their X Y Z identity group in a department. But yeah, I don't know if it's yeah. for students. I don't think students. Maybe students. I don't like think students. Hate this I, I bet they'll I, find see, it. See, I don't think they came off as badly as you guys do. So I don't know. I'm in a different position. But, but also, I mean, okay. those actors were like thirty. They had like white hair. I was like, these are not students. <laughs> I was so confused. Andy obsessed with the age of the actors. Um, okay, that's enough on this show. All right, thank you for listening to our show. Unless you guys have anything else to say, I'm cutting it short. All right, um, we do this every week. We're going to keep doing it every week. Uh, and you can subscribe to our show at goodbye.substack.com. That's goodbye.substack.com. There's an option that you can spend $5 a month to support the show. You can also do that on Patreon. We've had a recent uptick in listenership and subscriptions, which we thank you for. Um, and uh, yeah, for such sharp analysis, like let's talk for 40 minutes about a show that I fast forwarded through <laughs> some large portion of you can keep uh, or you can just join you can join our list for free um, and uh, you'll still get a lot of the episodes and uh, is there anything else oh you can email us at goodbye time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach us at twitter at ttsg pod okay Andy and Tammy it's great to talk to you too after this long 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 day off <laughs> <laughs> Bye guys. Yeah, I'm glad that the hurricane did not take you all out. <laughs> and uh, till next time.